0: Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I am back from Hawaii. I don't know if that is a good thing or not, but it is nice to be home and try to have a little bit of normalcy. I've been traveling a lot this summer. I realized yesterday that we've moved here two months ago to the other side of Washington State from where I was. And I have literally traveled every other week since we got here that wasn't exactly purposeful, but just busy with speaking at conferences and then going on vacation. And this next week I'm traveling to client location to help work on a product that I am helping them build for refund fraud. I'm pretty excited about it. There's always like this, okay, I know this hypothesis and I am feeling really strongly that it's gonna work, but you never know until it's in production. But I'm very excited that they are willing to put some development behind it and I will have more news on that another time later once it's coming in production and and ready I will be excited to share about that but, you know, I'm really glad that we got to go on vacation. It had been almost six years since our last family vacation. We had planned a big one in the fall of 2020, like I think everyone planned to travel in 2020. Then we know what happened there, and that's fine. So anyway, we got to have some good family time and, and some fun. And it was a little stormy the last couple of days. There were the biggest swells some of the locals had ever seen in the waves and lots of wind. But I joked that that's a first-world problem because we were still on Maui. And a few friends reached out to me during the week just with random reminders like, I hope you're drinking the tropical drink with an umbrella in it and not working. Or even my podcast producer joked that he was going to lock me out of the podcast platform so I couldn't do any work, which was very sweet. I will say this was the first vacation where I really didn't feel like I had to work much. I did record two podcast episodes in our condo, but that was because I didn't have time to do it before we left. And I knew that that was my commitment to you all. And hopefully you didn't mind hearing from my condo. And then I also replied to a few emails. I had more than usual new client inquiries last week. And I joked with my husband that, hmm, maybe I should go on vacation more often now. But I'm always humbled by that. And I want to make sure that I was replying to them quickly. So, but other than that, I really just tried to be kind of a beach bomb and just hang out with my family. My daughter turned 18 this week and my mom just retired. And so there's just a lot going on, a lot to celebrate and a lot to just kind of soak up a little bit. So I'm glad to be back. But again, I'm going to be getting on an airplane in a few days again, but you know, such is life. But I was glad that I kind of reminded myself I've traveled a lot this summer because I'm starting to feel a little guilty that there's still a few boxes in my office, all doing the best we can. And it, when I have a choice between trying to dig myself out of my inboxes or unpacking boxes, I usually feel like I need to work. So. Anyway, we all make those choices, right? I'm sure I am not alone. (laughs) So, for today's episode, I wanted to talk about a few of the newer trends and schemes in online fraud that have been reported to me by online merchants. And I think that this is helpful, even if you listen and you're like, huh, I don't think our company is seeing any of that or it doesn't apply. I wouldn't be surprised in the next several months or even a year if you start to see some kind of anomalies in your data and go, huh, I wonder if that's what Chris was talking about here or there, because especially one of these, but I think actually really at least two out of three are probably here to stay. And I think we'll just keep seeing variations of it for for the coming years, unless we can find a real solution for it. And it's getting harder, right? I mean, fraudsters have more resources than us. A lot of them invested the money they stole from government programs for COVID, especially in the U.S., into their businesses for fraud. It basically was fraudster venture. Your capital. There's also just a lot more technology out there, and there's a lot more of them. So they're really kind of building off of each other and have this consortium and info share where one person shares one method, and then someone else says, oh, and I found out you can do this or this. And so it's a lot. And it can feel a little overwhelming sometimes. So I don't share any of this to be Chicken Little or Debbie Downer or whatever name you want to give there. Negative Nancy. Wow, there's a lot of them. But I think that really it's better to know about the problem than not know about the problems. So because, you know, you don't know about the problem, you don't know what to prepare for. So I'll be talking a little bit about that. I have received a few questions from listeners asking if I've heard anything from Visa yet since episode 110, where I really, provided a deep dive of the upcoming or at least the visa rule announcement for 2023. It doesn't go into effect until April 2023, but it sure seems like there's going to be some really significant changes and impacts to online merchants, especially if you are responding to any of your fraud reason code chargebacks. gonna be a lot harder to win from what I can tell. And I provided a lot of in-depth information on that. So if you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend going back and doing that. I know, even though I haven't heard anything from Visa, I was kind of hopeful that I would, that maybe they would say, oh, well, you know, you misunderstood that. We actually meant this. And I would love to be able to go on and say that I misunderstood it because it sure seems it's a big change and it's kind of the opposite from what was promised. So it's been confusing for a lot of people, but I haven't heard a thing. I do know that there are a few top 100 uh, current present online companies that are meeting with their visa representatives soon. For the biggest companies, they do have visa reps and not just with their acquirer. And a few of them have said that they are, they've listened to the episode and wrote down several questions to ask visa for themselves because it could impact them so hopefully i'll hear back as far as the answers they got offer still stands if anyone from visa would like to be a guest on the podcast they are welcome to do so i know that that might be challenging to get it approved by comms and legal etc but i've even willing to send you know, a recording of the interview to them ahead of time to listen to and approve before i don't do that all the time but in this case i definitely would I'm usually just because of time, not because I'm trying to do any gotcha questions or anything. I mean, if you listened to Tuesday's episode with PJ Rohall or even last week's episode with Stephen Sargent, or the ones before with Dominic Squeal. Like, I don't ask gotcha questions. We just have really good conversations about online fraud. For PJ and I, it was really talking about our careers. And, and that was fun to kind of think about what advice we would give other people as a lot of people are thinking about changing positions or changing jobs or maybe you're worried about layoffs and other things. So hopefully all of that was great resources for you or were great resources for you. So let's dive into some of these trends. The first one, I'm calling compromised employee logins at partner companies. So I'm sure there's probably a better term for it. I know that the fraudsters call them innies, which just makes me think of a belly button. I don't but you know, kind of insider, but there's different ways that they're getting them. Sometimes it's willing and, and they're paying an employee or paying them per action that they do on their login. But a lot of times they're getting them through phishing attacks or through malware that is sending login information to the host for any site, including your employer's site, and then they'll package those up and sell them. So there are two types of partner companies that online companies, online merchants rely on where we're starting to see this. There's one particular company where we saw this first about a month and a half ago. I was kind of waiting to talk about it on the podcast to see if that company was going to take it seriously. And unfortunately, they have not. And that is very frustrating, but I'm not going to out them on the podcast because it's not public and it's not in a headline. So I'm not doing it. But there's two different groups. So one is shipping carriers, companies that ship and deliver items for all kinds of things, you know, packages, et cetera, but often for e-commerce these days. And then the other is payment methods or accounting services. So whether it's a wallet or an issuer or any kind of accounting software that sends invoices, that's really where we're seeing that compromise. So let's we'll dive into what is happening on the shipping carrier piece first. This is primarily impacting physical goods merchants, right? They're the ones that are shipping items. Digital goods are being delivered digitally. So there isn't a tracking number. There isn't a delivery and different statuses, etc. But this is really impacting retailers. And this specific scheme is targeting the highest dollar amounts. 10, 20, even $30,000. Now, finding a stolen card or even your own card that has $30,000 on it is a challenge. But some of these refunders, they're making millions of dollars a month. One of them made like $7 million in nine months just for refunding for people. It's really uh, frustrating, to say the least. So what's happening here is that they're, the bad actors are obtaining compromised employee logins for the carrier companies. As I said, it can happen in different ways. They're offering either a service where fraud is a service where you can provide a tracking number. You don't need to provide the label or anything else. Just send a tracking number of a package that you already received at your doorstep to the bad actor. I think it's $35 USD and 30 pounds in the UK. I can't remember. And this is happening internationally, primarily with shipping companies that deliver in the U.S. as well but there are some that deliver internationally in addition to the US. And those are the ones that I've heard that this is happening on, but I could see this happening quickly to any shipping company. And so they're getting employee logins and they're, let's just take the fraud as a service piece. So if I ordered something expensive and I wanted to commit refund fraud where I get to keep the item and I get all my money back and I don't have to file a charge back, I can copy and paste the tracking label of the item that I received send it to one of the people offering the service, they will use the employee login that they have to look up that tracking number. And where the final status of that order says delivered, they will change that to say returned to sender or lost in transit. Unfortunately, then that so that's a lot of times all that somebody in customer service or anyone that looks up the tracking number, all they see is the last status. Now, if they go into the details and they look, they might see some fishy things with times and other things like that. But when they're just looking at when somebody calls into a call center and says, hey, I ordered this expensive item and it didn't arrive. I don't know where it is. The customer service representative looks up the tracking number in their account and sees that the final status is lost in transit. So the merchant assumes that that's their fault or they're at least taking liability and they might file a claim with the carrier, but it's going to be maybe $100. It's not going to be the full amount of the item. So then they'll issue a refund. And if I was the person doing that, I would get this expensive item or items and my money back because of it. The other part that they're doing is actually selling these logins. They do recommend that you change the password right away. Hmm, How nice of them because it's account takeover, guys. That's why. But they're selling these employee logins, which tells me that they feel like they have they don't have a supply problem. If they did, they wouldn't be advertising this as much as they have been for the last few months. So someone, if they want to do it themselves or if they're a refunder who wants to up their game and and they notice that merchants are cracking down on inventory not received claims and damage claims and others, they can now buy a login for a shipping carrier. The current rate right now is $900 for an account and they won't guarantee how long it'll last because obviously the company may notice that the employee isn't using it and lock it out, but they recommend doing as much damage as you can before that happens. And it doesn't, I was looking at some of the reviews or the comments by people who had purchased this and they're not complaining that it was shut off right away. So I do know that many merchants and some of them are very large who use the first shipping carrier where this happened and where we saw this being advertised in refunder groups it really, it fell on deaf ears and that's very, very frustrating because merchants are losing millions of dollars on this and it isn't their fault. It isn't their vulnerability. It isn't their compromise. So it's very important for all companies to beef up their account security for their employees for a lot of reasons, but especially because you know these platforms are being relied on by e-com companies and here they are being the point of, not the point of compromise, but the, the weakest link. We'll just say it that way. I'll be very clear. I'm not saying anyone was breached. I just am saying that somehow these credentials came to them and they don't feel like they have a a shortage of supply. So whether that's through malware, whether that's through employees that no longer work there and the accounts haven't been shut down, I don't know. I also don't know if every employee at that company has. The ability to change the final delivery status, or if that's you know just reserved for certain titles and above, I I don't know. Unfortunately, that company has been less than responsive or available to talk about this. So that's the information that I have on on that piece. But it is definitely impacting a lot of companies. Now, as I did say, you know, you can look in the details, and sometimes you can see some anomalies in that, whether it's through the timing of when different tracking numbers were changed, like maybe something looks delivered and then a month later it says it was lost in transit or something like that. I'm not going to give away too many details. We don't need them to know what our secrets are to figure this out. But you can look in the details and try to find anomalies in that way. But it's definitely not easy and it requires changing, you know, SOPs with customer service, which is not always easy, especially if merchants have outsourced customer service, etc. The other type of partner to merchants that are being compromised right now are payment methods. There was one pretty predominant one that got, well, there were articles written about this, so I think I will say it. Over the last few weeks, there have been some pretty sophisticated phishing scams using PayPal, and I'm still trying to get some of the details down, but it looks like bad actors are sending invoices to people from what looks like a legitimate company through PayPal's system. That's what it looks like because it looks like it's a legitimate invoice that you can pay. It's being sent to both consumers as well as businesses, and they're hoping that people will pay the random amount of invoice that isn't due, but that says it is. But there's some other variations to this. The bigger the fish, so to speak. Sorry, that was a bad pun. But the bigger the FISH is, the bigger the more effort they put into the PHISH, where there's been some companies targeted. And right at the opportune time when the merchant or the company isn't sure what if they should be paying this or not, an account manager from will or from that company that they're posing as will call them and say, hey, we really need this invoice. Yep. Click on the link. It's all good. I've seen a couple of LinkedIn posts recently from people in fraud that have received these like just out of the blue invoices for transaction amounts that they don't recognize or that into people or companies that they don't recognize. And they'll say that, yes, the invoice looks very real and and is coming from the PayPal domain. That's why it's able to even make it to your inbox, because a lot of email company or email platforms have really perfected. They understand that PayPal is one of the companies that is really targeted for phishing scams or used for phishing scams. So They will make sure that anything close to that doesn't make it to your inbox. It gets filtered out by spam or by the spam filters. But in these cases, they're coming from them. And I think what they're doing is setting up phony businesses that look like legitimate businesses that companies would use, or they can sometimes be private names to consumers. It's kind of running the gamut here, but it's definitely something to be aware of, especially I think the biggest points of action that you can do there is you can check with your information security department, make sure they're aware of this there. I will include at least one article in the show notes for this so that you can share that with them, as well as letting your accounts payable now if they receive any invoices from PayPal or QuickBooks. QuickBooks is another one that has pretty publicly been a victim of this as well, where their good name and the trust that companies have built with those companies are being or that merchants have built with these accounting softwares and invoice companies are being exploited, where they're kind of exploiting these companies that you trust and that your email administrators trust, because it's probably common for your accounts payable department to get invoices from QuickBooks or PayPal or others or banks or others. So making sure that your accounts payable team knows if they receive any emails for invoices to make sure that those invoices really do exist, they need to be paid, and also not to click the link or call the phone number in the invoice. It is more than possible that that link will just go to PayPal and allow you to pay the the invoice amount, but you don't want to take your chances. Scheme could morph and adapt as time goes on. So just something to be aware of. So letting your information security department know, make sure that they're on top of it as well as accounts payable. And I know that a lot of large companies, you know, there's a lot of hoops that they have to go through and that AP has to go through to make sure that they're paying the right people and the right amount and all of that. And that's all very good. Unfortunately, a lot of small businesses aren't as thorough or as cautious. But at the same time, I do know of some big companies that'll just pay invoices. I mean, I don't think I've ever worked with any of them. (laughs) A lot of times it might take a little while, but you just can't rely on everyone paying attention because a lot of times, again, you trust those companies and so therefore they look legitimate and your spidey senses may not be going up as much. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soup's Ranjan. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no. Maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, So those are a couple of things that those two schemes, though, they're kind of the same thing, right? I guess I don't know for sure if the PayPal and the QuickBooks schemes are because employee logins have been used, but they are targeting people on behalf of the company. In this other case, they're using and they're logging into real employee accounts and being able to change the status so that when a customer calls the merchant and says, I didn't get it, the merchant sees, oh, this was returned to sender, this was lost in transit, here's your money, even though the customer already got it. So that is infuriating. This is why refund fraud is pretty big on my list with projects I'm working on, as well as product development that I mentioned earlier, because I know that a standalone refund product for online retailers is needed desperately. And I feel like all of this research that I have done over the last couple of years and the merchants that I've worked with on this has really put me in an interesting position to be able to hopefully help with this problem. So here's another issue that is impacting merchants, and it's one that isn't necessarily new, but the scale and the methods are newer and they are ramping up. And that is bad actors buying accounts, buying online accounts, but not just for banks, not just for credit card companies. If anything, actually, they're really targeting accounts that are kind of free, right? The consumers think, oh, well, shoot, I'll get 50 bucks for my account at AYZ merchant, okay. I mean, I can always start another one if I wanna buy something again, or I'm not really buying that anymore, or for marketplaces, I'm not really selling there anymore. So it has no value to me, I might as well cash it in for 100 bucks or whatever the going rate is. And like with everything, there are algorithms determining the going rate for accounts based on how long they've been active, how active they've been, etc. You know, so this is something, like I said, that's happened for a long time. I think it was fairly public that several years ago Reddit accounts were being bought and sold for the karma points because the more people posted on Reddit, and I think this is still true, the more karma points they get, in quotation marks. And those karma points allow them to be more trusted. And so spammers, people that want to spam a bunch of stuff or even some marketers and other things would buy these logins so that they could look like, wow, they've participated a lot and they have a lot of good karma in quotation marks. They're really, in that case, buying the trust of older accounts. In other ways, it has to do with sometimes it's, you know, they're going to commit account takeover and use the stolen payment method or use the payment method on the account. So they're almost like having victim assisted account takeover. I think is how we would say it, kind of similar to these victim-assisted scams targeting banks and consumers. And it's happening a lot more. I've seen and I've heard of a couple of accounts recently where people are finding out, people within the fraud department or fraud industry are finding out that some of their friends are selling their accounts because why not? And people are falling on tough times. So sometimes you just Don't really think about what it's going to be used for. You just are like, oh, well, I mean, it has no value to me. I I can open another account for free just fine. I might as well. In other cases, marketplaces and gaming, like online games, not gambling, but online games will give extra perks for the number of times you've purchased or the number of times you've sold an item on a marketplace. And so that can continue to make the value worth it. I know for many years, other accounts have been bought and sold for digital wallets, especially for refund fraud, right? They know they kind of figure out the algorithm that some of the digital wallets or buy now pay laters will use in granting refunds or granting disputes. And so they'll say, hey, I need an account that is was created prior to 2006 that doesn't have any history of a refund claim for the last three years. And we'll purchase it that way, too. Okay. I apologize if you just heard some papers rustling in the background. My dog got into some tissue paper in my office. I think he needs to go for a walk soon, but I promised him I will be done in 10 minutes and I know he understood. But yeah, so those are all the reasons why people would want to buy accounts and then obviously selling them for money. And a lot of times we know this drill, right? People go to sell something and they give them the access and then they don't get the money. That happens too. But Other times people are getting the money for it. The reason why this is happening so much bigger is that it's happening at scale. There are now social media ads and and groups dedicated to making money. There's some like peer-to-peer investment groups on social media and in others that are saying, hey, this is a great way to earn a little bit extra money. I even saw a blog post about making money is selling your merchant account an extra way to make money. And they didn't say it was it was illegal. They just said, well, you might want to check the terms of service because you might be breaking that. but it's like, ah, that's not. There are other ways to make side money, guys, please. I mean, like I said, it's kind of like victim-assisted account takeover, and it can impact a lot of merchants in different ways. The companies that are being targeted the most are online gaming companies, travel companies, event ticketing, especially by brokers as well as bad actors, retail, banking, wallets, social media, marketplaces. I mean, if I forgot, ride shares. I mean, pretty much everyone in different ways. Some accounts are worth more than others, etc., depending on the brand and everything else. But so the purpose of the bad actors getting a hold of this obviously are, like I said, using the stolen point, using the card on file if the account holder forgot to take that off using the loyalty points or the extra credibility that the longevity of an account can bring you, as well as anything to hide activity, right? So if like for sneaker companies with bots might want a more longer, older account, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the risks to consumers, I mean, one is if there is a purchase on a store card or if there is some kind of risk and that account is closed and put on a negative list, it's, most likely not just going to be on that one merchant's negative list, but if that merchant uses a consortium of negative lists, so they're not just saying, oh, yep, we've seen this address and stuff before, they're saying we've seen fraud or chargebacks associated with this account or these indicators, that can put the consumer who sold their account on negative list for companies, and they have no idea how or why or what to do. So that can be a risk. But it's also just, I mean, it's, there's so many risks, right? What if the consumer uses the same password for multiple accounts and just gives the bad actor, you know, their username and password to that account that they're selling? And now the bad actor can go look up every other account, right? Or just try that and do credential stuffing. You know, like I said, there's a lot of things there. In addition to selling on social media and paying for ads and everything else. And I know that one consumer got really defensive and said, well, why would they put it on social media? Why would social media allow it if it's not okay? Well, because they don't vet their ads. I mean, they try to and they try to look for keywords and things, but there's not humans looking at them. There's not really the internet police. I mean we all try to do our best, but really we're representing our own company and I'm using the Royal Leap. And so Just lots of things. There's also marketplaces online. There's one that's been around for a long time. I'm really surprised it's still around. I'm not going to say the name of it, but it's on the surface web selling accounts to all kinds of online companies. And they even offer chargeback protection to sellers. I mean, it's Really crazy. They're like offering security and other things and middlemen. And I'm like, what in the world? How in, How is this okay? How is this legal? I understand posts on social media, but these, these sites have been around for years and they've been registered for several. So that's something that you can look at if you're curious about that. And then As far as on the merchant side, what to look out for, I mean, they're gonna look like account takeover, but might have a few other changes. When we were talking about this in one of my merchant collaboration calls, a merchant said, oh my gosh, we were wondering if people were selling their accounts, but we couldn't figure out why or what it was, but it just, it looked all different. And so they were gonna do some research to find out if their accounts were being targeted, which knowing their brand, I am sure that they are, unfortunately. A lot of times they'll change the address, the email, the phone number. A lot of times there's a new device and the IP, but also bad actors get good and may ask original account holder to pull up their device ID on their phone or pull up their IP address or whatever so they can spoof it. I mean, and they're going to keep adapting as long as they need to. But one thing that has come up recently with account takeovers, and not not all of it, but just there's a couple ways that merchants have started to prevent account takeovers at the time of login that I think are really interesting. There's one where they're adding a passive authentication step at the time any changes are made to the account. So if a new billing or a new shipping address is added, if a new email address, phone, those type of like, new devices seen or way new IP, they might two-factor authentication is always an option, but we're seeing these OTP bots, these one-time password bots that are targeting accounts that require two-factor authentication. And I know I talked about them on a past episode. If you don't remember, let me know and i I can try to do more dedicated information on those. You can also Google OTP bots and I think Frank Liketa did a good article on it and some others as well a few months ago. But another thing to do is to add this passive authentication where... You're looking at the identity information that was provided to behind the scenes. So you're basically running it through your identity verification or your identity data verification service, not asking for ID, not identity document verification, but, you know, services that will verify if that's where the cardholder has lived or an email that's been associated with them or a phone number that's registered in their name or someone on their family, et cetera. So that's one option, you know, when the customer changes their account information, You can run that through on the back end, which could really help you and maybe put it back into your fraud review or have some kind of alert if those don't match up. And the other option is something that I've noticed Amazon does. I noticed this as a user because I moved and changed my shipping address recently. And then when I went to Hawaii and I was ordering things for Prime Day, sorry guys, that don't work for Amazon, it wasn't too many things, but some things they noticed I was in Hawaii. And so I had to do this too, where you have to re enter the original card number all the way, right? So I had to go downstairs from the condo. We had the loft bedroom. I go downstairs to my purse to grab my card to re enter all the 16 digits. But I obviously knew why I was being asked to do it, so it didn't bother me. But that's also an option. I know that would take a little more dev work than the other one. But those are two options right now that I know some merchants have put in place and have been helpful in identifying account takeovers and trying to stop them as well. And at least stop them from being able to be monetized. If, you know, a bad actor is taking over an account and they're not able to monetize it, they're going to move on eventually because there's no point especially if they're purchasing the account and they already are out quite a bit of money because they definitely are. The amounts that they're paying consumers for their accounts are definitely significantly higher than what bad actors can buy in bulk, but they have the certainty that that account works and the certainty that they have all the consumer information, etc. Whereas when they're buying it in bulk, they don't know how many of those username and password combinations are going to work. So it just really depends on the fraudster and especially the scale that they're creating these going through these motions and all that. The other piece I would definitely say is to make sure that your terms of service or your terms and conditions say that it's against them to sell or give away accounts. And if you're seeing this a lot, you could talk to your communications teams about messaging, you know, sending a reminder and talk to them about messaging that would basically say don't sell your accounts, but in a much nicer way as comms departments are good at is creating nicer messaging than probably what I would do. Like, stop that. (laughs) Do a little more than that. So those are some of the things that you can do educating your customers on what can happen if they sell their account, the negative parts, or, I don't know, you could try this the carrot approach too. I'm just not really thinking what that could be without it getting to take advantage of fraudsters on the other end. So but I know a lot of you are very smart and creative. So you may think of a way. And then the last trend that's been reported to me by online merchants, this one's really interesting and it's also perplexing and makes me wonder if this also has to do with carrier employee logins. And if carrier employee logins are being used, compromised employee logins at carriers are being used in this way as well. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but It's the only thing I can think of for how they they know part of this. But Basically, what's happening is there's been several reports to a few merchants, one told me at first, and then I've heard about it a couple other times, where everyday customer orders an item and it, it comes to their house. That happens how many millions of times a day, right? Not just at my house millions of times, but, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, a few times here and there, where, you know, so say I use my own credit card, I'm shipping it to my own address, etc. It arrives on my doorstep. Within 10 minutes of delivery, I get a call saying, hey, this is the merchant that you ordered the item from. We need to recall that item. Or we realized that we sent you out a batch that's corrupt or whatever the line is, right? Depending on what the item is, if it's electronics, maybe it has a leaky battery inside. Maybe it can accidentally explode like some of those Samsung phones a long time ago. They'll make up anything, right? To say, we recognize that there's a defect in this and we really need you to return it back to us. Oftentimes they will very nicely provide a return shipping label. Other times they'll just provide the address and tell the customer that they need to return it to that address, but Fraudsters have learned the same thing that online companies have learned. When you provide them a return label, they're more likely to send it back. And so, what's happening is legitimate customers who purchase items on their card and then they're at their address and all of that are now getting called right after it arrives on their doorstep. Sometimes it's within 10 minutes. Actually, oftentimes it's within 10 minutes of a delivery. They're called by someone. There's a problem with this item. We need you to send it back within one to two days. Customer sends it back to the address that they're given. I mean, how else would someone? know that they were getting that item from that merchant that day. So they're trusting. They believe that that's that merchant. And then a week or two goes by and customer doesn't have the item they purchased and they haven't received a refund as they were promised on the phone call. So they call the customer service for the merchant and the merchant doesn't know what they're talking about. And now the customer is irate and believes that they deserve a refund and totally understand why because they believed that company was the one that called them. And now again, we're left with the same outcome as with payment fraud, with refund fraud, et cetera. The company's out the item. And they're out the money and all of the resources surrounded to this shipping costs, phone, just all the different costs associated with each order, especially when there's an issue and call center is involved, etc. So that is something that is definitely something to be on the watch for. This is yet another reason why I'm gonna to continue to say it is so important for fraud departments to have a really good relationship and open communication with customer service. You will never know. There's so much that you won't know if you could are disconnected or don't communicate well, it's really helpful to have even just one meeting a week to say, hey, what's going on? Are you seeing anything weird? Or to provide a presentation to the customer service department on this is what we do in the fraud team. And I mean, not all the secrets don't say this is why we cancel orders, et cetera, because they inherently want to help customers. And sometimes they might accidentally slip up. So sometimes it's better they don't know everything. But explain, you know, the job of the fraud department and what some of the suspicious things that they might come about should get, what those sound, what they look like, when they should transfer them to your department, when they should take a note of them and email them or send them in Slack, et cetera. That is so good because they really are your frontline of defense. They're also the ones that hold the keys to the kingdom and are the most susceptible to social engineering because they're client facing. So the more you can have those open lines of communication, the more you can be aware of what's happening and try to fix it pretty quickly. The merchant who first told me about this, they have a really good relationship with customer service and really credit that for a lot of the reasons why they know about new trends faster than a lot of people. So this particular merchant has been a really good source for information for the podcast over the last year or two because they do have such a good relationship with other departments and they're asking them for feedback and they're telling them, hey, this is what I need and this is what it's going to look like. You cannot fight fraud in silo. I will say that a million times. It's so important to have, whether you call it the fraud squad or an action committee or whatever you call it, just having a group of people and leaders within the teams where you kind of bump up against sometimes, whether that's AML, whether that's technology, whether that's finance, whether that's loss prevention or obviously customer service and others. It's so important to have that. It really makes humongous difference. And a lot of times, the reason why budgets are not approved and other things is because leadership doesn't fully understand some of the complexities and nuances of fraud prevention. And that It's not always possible to have the same system for six years, depending on a lot of factors, whether you've added new business models or your provider has unfortunately stopped innovating, which seems to happen the most with acquisitions and some IPOs, but uh, or something or extra investments or buyouts, etc. But not all the time, just that seems to be the case. And also the fraud changes. So the fraud systems and, and the risk stack that you had three years ago may not work the same now. You might need to change out a layer. You might need to add an additional layer. You might need to change the core process and the core systems for your CRM and your case management. It just really varies. And so the more you can communicate with your leadership, the better. I feel like I'm a broken record when I say that, but it just is so important now more than ever, especially as budgets are being looked at. And fraud continuously is wrongfully, in my opinion, seen as a cost center. And so it's, in my opinion, it's our job to explain it to them so that they understand. Just saying, oh, trust me, or I know what fraud looks like. Don't worry about it. And especially when they, money starts getting tight. They're like, are we sure that all those orders are canceling are fraud? Because we really need them. And it can get very stressful. Well, I think that I have talked enough this week. I, like I said, I don't like ever being the bearer of bad news, but I think that it is better to know a problem than not. And I hope for your sake that your company is not impacted by any of these things. But if you are now or if you are in the future, if there's any questions you have about any of these three trends or schemes, I'm certainly still trying to gather some data around some of them or at least one of them, I guess. But if you have any adaptations that you've seen or questions that you have have, let me know and I will try to get back to you as soon as I can. With that, guys, I as always am just so grateful that you take time out of your busy weeks to listen to Fraudology. If you have just a little more time, I would love it if you rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell a friend, tell a colleague. I am so grateful to all of you and really enjoy seeing the numbers go up. It's kind of silly, but you know, we all love data, right? And so every once in a while, I refresh the graph. And if it's not going up, I'm like, Oh, no, what did I do? But I also know everybody's busy and going on vacation right now, too. So I've heard from some of you that are listening to this in some very exotic locations. And that is amazing. But even if you're listening to it from your home, I just I really appreciate it. So I will talk to you more next week. And I hope that you all have a great weekend.